what consecration is, let me tell you what it isn't. It's not going to church once a week. It's not daily devotions. It's not fasting. It's not keeping the Ten Commandments. It's not sharing your faith. It's not giving God the tithe, etc., etc., etc. It's more than behavior modification. Anybody can learn to do those things and call it surrender. And surrender may not even be in at the heart of any of it. So he says it's more than just going to church. It's more than giving an offering. It's more than just doing. It's more than behavior modification. It's more than conformity to a moral code. I know how I grew up, there were guidelines. Whether written or not, there were guidelines that if you wanted to be a quote-unquote good Christian, you had to follow. You had to make sure life fit into the parameters. And that's not what it's all about. He says it's more than doing good deeds. It's something deeper, something truer. The word consecration means to be set apart. By definition, it demands full devotion. It's dethroning yourself and enthroning Jesus. It's the complete divestiture of all self-interest. It's giving God veto power. Think about that just for a moment. Have I given God veto power? I have an agenda, I have a direction, and I have a plan for my life, but God, I let you have all of that. I'm willing to surrender what I want to do to what you would have me to do. Veto power. God says, I'm going to trump that. And you say, fine, Lord, it's yours. My life is yours. It's surrendering all of you to all of Him. It's a simple recognition that every second of time and every penny of money is a gift from God and for God. Consecration is an ever-deepening love for Jesus. A childlike trust in the Heavenly Father and blind obedience to the Holy Spirit. Consecration is all that and a thousand things more, Mark Batterson says. But for the sake of simplicity, let me give you this personal definition. Consecration is going all in and all out for the all in all. I don't know what comes to your mind when you read something like that. I know for a lot of us, we have a pretty high opinion of ourselves. We do. Whether we want to admit that or not, we have a pretty high opinion of ourselves. We take care of ourselves. We look out for number one. We, we make ourselves look good, smell good, feel good every day because that's what we do. But when we think about being consecrated for God, how does that fit into the picture of life? What is it that we live most for in this life? What is it that we live most for? Is it the job? Is it to pay the bills so that we can have nice things? Is it for the grandchildren? Is it for my own peace of mind and comfort? What is it that we live for in this life? What is our motivation for what we do in life? What is the motivation behind what we do? Is it to make ourselves look good? Is it to impress people? Is it to impress our spouse or our children? Is it to impress our friends, our neighbors, our relatives, co-workers? Maybe our consecration can be determined by what our goals are. What is it that we are committed to? What is it that we are committed to? 
And the kind of a final question that comes to my mind when I think about this is, not what am I willing to sacrifice, but what have I sacrificed? Theoretically, we could ask this question to every one of us in a room and say, would you give up this and you fill in the blank for the cause of Christ? Theoretically, most every one of us in this auditorium, I'm convinced, would say, well, well, yes, Pastor, we would. I would be willing to give up this. I would be willing to give up that. I would sacrifice all this if God asked me to. On paper, that sounds great. In theory, that sounds wonderful. But what about in practicality and in, in reality? Practically speaking, not what am I willing to give up, not what am I willing to sacrifice, not what am I willing to be committed to should God ask me, but what am I currently doing to show that? I've said many times that my calling as a pastor is just that. It's a calling. It's not a career choice. There are a thousand other careers that would be fun and enjoyable and trying and exciting. I look at Mike Rowe on Dirty Jobs and I say, that would be cool. I could do that. I look at all these guys that do different things and I think, boy, that would be fun. Everything's fun for a season, right? We all know that we're old enough, mature enough to realize that the grass really isn't greener on the other, on the other side, right? We know that. Everything's fun for a season. But what drives me in ministry is the fact that I was called, not a, didn't choose it as a career. When an eighth grade came around, I went on a mission trip, and God clearly spoke to me through the preacher. I surrendered my life to God. It was a calling. And therefore, as a calling, when it gets tough, it doesn't matter. You keep going. In a career, you can quit. In a job, you can quit. You can change professions. But this is not a career choice. And I oftentimes wonder if we shouldn't treat all of life that way. This might be the career that God has led you in. But are you committed to it for the right reasons? It's more than a job. It's more than a means to provide for my family. I'm committed to it because it's my mission field. Or I'm committed to it because this is, the, this is where God has me. Lots of questions come to my mind. If you would, I told you Romans chapter 12, but go back just one chapter to Romans chapter 11. And I want to read just a couple of verses, and I'm taking just part of the context, so please understand that. I want to read verses 33 through the end of the chapter there. Verse 33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable His judgments and untraceable His ways. Then he asks a couple of questions here. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor, or who has ever first given to Him and has to be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. But notice in verse 36, for from Him and through Him and to Him, what's the next word? Are. Everything that exists is because of one reason. God allowed it to exist. So He says, for from Him, that's God giving to man, and through Him, without Him it wouldn't be, and to Him it's to come back to Him all things. 
In other words, we would be not here, or we would not be here, and we would have nothing. It would not be for God doing it in our lives. We would be nothing, we would have nothing, apart from God's gracious gift to mankind. Does that make sense? It says, from Him, through Him, to Him, are. It's a huge three-letter word, are. Everything consists in Him. And he says, to Him be glory forever and ever. And then he gives us something to think about, verse 34 and 35. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor? Who gives God advice? Who tells God how to do something? Who gives God, who gives God instruction on when something needs fixed? Obviously a rhetorical question, nobody can. Because God is infinitely omniscient. He knows all things. Everything comes from Him to begin with. And nobody can give God advice. Nobody can give God wisdom. Nobody can give God understanding. He already possesses it all. Verse 35, Or who has ever first given to Him and has to be repaid? God got nothing from nobody. And when we start thinking about this, if God has been so gracious and merciful to give us all things... Doesn't He deserve to be repaid in some way through our life? So then He goes on, therefore, verse 12, chapter 12, verse 1. And I was taught as a kid that when you see a therefore, see what it's there for. And what it's there for is because of what we just read, in part. Therefore, brothers, He's talking to believers here. By the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. So he says here in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Brothers, by the mercies of God that you present your lives, your bodies, your lives, everything that you are as a living sacrifice to God. Notice in the Old Testament, you had to bring a dead animal to sacrifice. In the Old Testament, something had to die. Come to the New Testament, he says, I don't want you to die. He says, I want you to what? Live. So he has this whole premise that I want you to live for me by the mercies of God, which is what? Your reasonable form of worship or obedience or sacrifice. He says, it's reasonable. In light of what I have done for you, it is reasonable that you would live for me, is what he says here. Here's where theory and reality kind of clash just a little bit. In theory, boy, God, we give you everything. In reality, I give you some things. I thought about just for a moment, there has been several spoofs made of the hymn, I Surrender All, over the years. And one of the spoofs that has been made from it is a song entitled, I Surrender Some. And you get the idea, and I thought, no, nah, I won't do that this morning. But isn't that how we live life? I surrender some, I surrender some, you know, yeah. Because that's how we live. We give God leftovers. We were saying in Sunday school class this morning, I can remember growing up in church. My whole life revolved around church. It just was the way it was. 
I mean, I was at Saturday work, Saturday morning work days. I was at Saturday afternoon bus calling. I was at, you know, every work day is there, Wednesday night, Thursday night. I mean, I about lived at my church. Every fun memory I have as a kid growing up somehow was connected to church. Was it a little bit extreme? Yeah, maybe some. But my every memory of growing up was so tied with the church. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to live for the Lord. I wanted, him, I wanted to be committed to Him more than anything else, and nothing else really mattered. And a generation later, two generations later, we're lucky to give God one day a week when it's convenient. I wonder how often we do pick up His Word and we read it. I wonder how often we just spend time in prayer because we want to commune with God. I wonder how often we are willing to surrender and sacrifice. Can I just say just for a moment? We understand Romans 12, 1 and 2. It's not difficult to understand, is it? It's really straightforward. So he says "Is Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship, or form of service, some of your translations may say. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may discern or prove what is that good and acceptable, pleasing, perfect will of God. I think of the term sacrifice. And let's just put it practical to where the rubber meets the road. In life, we all have interests. We all have desires. We all have things that we appreciate things that we look forward to, things that we want to do, things that we want to accomplish, goals that we're working towards, things that please us. We're going down this road called life, and we're just doing this, and we're doing this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this, just kind of hunky-dory, walking along. And then God confronts us with a statement of, hey, will you do this? Well, Lord, um, (laughs) you know I'm really busy right now. I know the church could use some time. I know that I know that your service to you, Lord, would would be beneficial. But you know, I'm really busy. I got a lot of a lot of a lot of, a lot of jobs to do. I got work hours to put in. And you know, Lord, my, my my kids are in sports. I mean, I got, God, you understand. And I wonder sometimes, are we willing to sacrifice, or lay aside, or put to the side what we want to do, what pleases us? What interests us, what makes us comfortable, what makes us happy to do that which would bring glory to God. I'm willing to sacrifice what I want to do what He wants. That's at the heart of surrender. Giving God veto power. God, you do with my life whatever you choose. Lord, I know I have this agenda, but... Yours is more important. Lord, I know this pleases me, but I know this pleases you. And here's the thing that we forget. Psalm 37:23 says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. God is not going to make you do something that is miserable. I believe firmly that either God's going to give you joy in doing what he asks you to do, or he's going to change your heart so that you will have joy in doing what he asks you to do. Following God is not a burden. Following God is not grievous. Following God is a privilege. 
And he didn't make robots. He wants us to choose to follow him. I'm reminded of what it says in Revelation 4.11. For thou hast created all things, and for thy what? Pleasure they are and were created. God says, I created you to bring me pleasure. But we live life as though we're here to bring ourselves pleasure. Colossians 1.16 says that in all things he might have what? Preeminence. But we live life as though we're preeminent. And somehow there's a imbalance there. We know who God is. We know what God wants. How is this accomplished? What is the foundation of our surrender? Take your Bibles just for a moment and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I think this is a great foundation here. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. It says, Don't you know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? What's the next phrase? You are not... What is it? Your own. You are not your own. For you are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Principle there, very simply, is it? You're not your own. You don't own you. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? But God says, I purchased you. I bought you. When I died on the cross and I shed my blood, I paid the price for your life. I own you. Look at 1 Peter 1. If you'll turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1. 18 and 19. It says, For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from the fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. And he was chosen before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end of times for you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. The whole idea behind this is what? God owns us. He's redeemed us. And that's why he says in Romans 12 that we'd be a living sacrifice. Surrender starts at salvation. It doesn't make sense to surrender if we don't know God. Does it? It doesn't make any sense to say, God, I give you everything, if we haven't surrendered to Him in salvation first. That's where it starts. And there's a progression here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, it's a familiar verse. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And look at the next phrase. Old things are passed away, and look, new things have come. All things are new. Here's the idea. When I'm going this way in life, and God brings salvation to my life, and I accept that, and I put my faith and trust in Him, all of a sudden there is a turning away from the lifestyle that I did live to something new. How I used to live before Christ should be different than how I live in Christ. The goals that I had as a non-believer should be different than the goals that I have as a believer. 
how I used to live for myself in my sinful flesh should not be how I live, because now I'm supposed to be living according to the Spirit, following God in obedience. So no life is, my old life was all about me. The new life is all about Christ. There's a change. What makes a difference? Surrender. Because it's no longer about me. It's all about Him. And that's a process that all of us need to struggle through. Am I willing to give God everything? Am I willing to sacrifice what I want? Surrender what I want to what God wants? So the whole idea is, old things are passed away, all things have become new. Look back a couple chapters there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Turn left a couple pages, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. Here's the process. Surrender starts at salvation. And then we commit our lives to Him. Now, brothers, I want to clarify for you the gospel I proclaim to you. How you received it and have taken your stand on it. You also are saved by it if you hold to the message I proclaim to you, unless you believe for no purpose. For I pass unto you as, as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scripture, that He was buried, that He raised again on the third day, according to the Scriptures. So there's a whole idea of what? That Christ died on a cross, He gave up His life willingly, shed His blood that we might have forgiveness of sins, and then what? We give, in, we give our life to Him. You say, well, what's the big deal about baptism? For those of you that haven't been here long enough to see my illustration, watch with me again. I get baptized. I stand in the water, right? When I stand in the water, here's the water, here's me, I form a what? Cross. What did Jesus die on the cro- do on the cross? He died. He went under. Did Jesus Christ stay in the grave? No. He rose up. Isn't that what 1 Corinthians talks about? The fact that Jesus Christ was buried, that He died, it was buried, but He didn't stay buried. He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So here's the deal. Salvation is an internal thing, but baptism is a public thing. It's a public testimony of a private conversion. What happens internally, what no one else can see, is made manifest through the testimony of baptism. So there's the importance of when we die... We are dying to self. It's no longer about me and what pleases me and what I want and what I enjoy and what I want to do with my life because it's not mine anymore. When I surrendered to the Lord in salvation and made my testimony public, I died to self. It says, when I died, the old man was crucified. It went under. It stayed in the grave. A new man arose. Right? Isn't that what baptism is? A new life in Christ. And now I'm raised with Christ. And so it's a public testimony of what has taken place inwardly. And I publicly proclaim, I'm a follower of Christ. And that's why he says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the Gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and then also to the Gentile. He says there is power, and I'm not ashamed of that. And then we see it exemplified in the life of Paul. And I love what he says, we're almost through. 
Can you imagine just for a moment if Paul says, skip that, I'm still living for myself. I'm just going to do what I want. You can imagine what the blessings that would have been missed from a life that was dedicated to God, fulfilled in his commitment to serving God. And what did Paul say? Philippians 1.21 For to me to live is Christ, and to die is what? Gain. Whoa, that don't make sense. What are you talking about dying is gain? Because Paul was not alive for himself any longer. Remember two weeks ago we talked about a phrase in Mark Batterson's book, One-Way Missionaries. One-Way Missionaries. And I've been talking about this with different people the last couple of weeks. I was talking about uh, Pastor Lauren and, and a couple of people that were around in the living room there. We were talking about the one-way missionaries. One-way missionaries at the turn of the century basically sold everything they had. They went to the New, New Hebrew Islands in the South Pacific. They didn't bring suitcases. They didn't bring trunks. They bought a coffin. Can you imagine? How many have been on a trip and you brought your coffin with you? Right. That's not normal. But these missionaries weren't normal. Stories told of A.W. Milne, who basically, as he gave up everything to go, he purchased his wooden coffin, he loaded his possessions in it to go to the South Pacific. And people looked at him and they said, Are you crazy? Don't you realize that every missionary that has gone before you was killed? These people are not friendly. Please don't go. See, what people failed to realize is that he had already died to himself. He bought his coffin. And he had no intention of returning. And for whatever reason, he found favor amongst those people. And they spared his life. And on the inscription on his coffin, they wrote this epitaph. When he came, there was no light. When he left, there was no darkness. He gave his life in surrender. He died to self. I wonder what would be different in our world. And as I said two weeks ago, I'm preaching to myself too because we all have some work to do. But I wonder what would be different in our lives if we would truly be able to say before God, I surrender all. I'm willing to sacrifice what is near and dear to me to please you, God. I'm willing to purchase my coffin, so to speak. I'm holding nothing back. That's why Paul could say, for to me to live is Christ. And to die, <laughs> that's the icing on the cake. Think of Papa the night that he passed away at the hospital. I reached down there and said, I'm a little bit jealous. So you're going to get there before me. He's ready to go. I wonder if we could say that. I'm willing to give up everything. And whatever happens, happens. I like what Charles Stanley say, follow God and let the chips fall where they may. Are we willing to give all? That's why he could say, for me to live as Christ and to die, well, that's gain. That's why he's able to say in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. He says, it's not about me any longer. It's not about me. 
So, Pastor, what is it that you're trying to accomplish in this series? Whatever God wants to do in your life, that's what my goal is. I have no agenda for any of you. I simply want us to consider one by one as individuals in our time with God, have I surrendered all? Have I surrendered all? Have I given God everything? God, I give you control. You see, because hypothetical doesn't work in a Christian life. And hypothetically, I mean this. We often say, well, if God calls me, then I will. You're called. You're called. Let me just remove the mystery. You're called. Maybe not all vocationally, but you're called. Number two. Oftentimes we say, well, God, if you'd just give me a sign, I would. What more of a sign do you need? He's let you live. You're alive. And life is not about me. And it's not about you. What does God want you to do with your life? How does God want you to spend life? I'm one of those kind of weird guys. I I mean, I know you know that, but I don't want to retire. I've got friends who are in their 60s and 70s who after they quit their day job, they still go all around the country and serve. They volunteer. They work at camps. They work at Bible institutes. They work at colleges. They just volunteer because they want to serve God. What would be different in your sphere of influence if you just say, God, use me? Put my talents aside because it's not about your talents. Put your abilities aside. It's not about what you think you can or cannot do. There's plenty of examples in Scripture. Moses, what's in your hand? Staff, throw it on the ground. See, God will take what you've got and use it. Period. End of question. Big exclamation point. He'll take what you've got. Are you willing to give it? And what would be different in our world if we held nothing back? I've said it a thousand times, but who does God want you to impact? Not the masses. I don't know that God wants you to rent, any of you to run out Blue Cross Arena and hold a crusade. But just a life-touching life. Saying, God, use me. I'll withhold my discomfort or maybe my shyness, or maybe my lack of comfort to open my mouth. God, I'll sacrifice coffee for the next month to help this need over here. God, I'll sacrifice this to help accomplish that. I don't know what God may be doing in your life. But I know this. We talked about it in Sunday school again this morning. Just for a moment. I wonder if we're just happy, satisfied, content with the way things are in church. And I'm not talking about just our church, but churches across America. Are we just okay with okay? I mean, trust me, I'm grateful, I'm thankful that our church isn't going through a split. Praise God. I'm glad we don't have big divisions where someone is just absolutely torqued beyond measure at someone else on the opposite row. At least I don't think there is. I'm thankful for the relative peace we have within our church. And I don't want to take that for granted. I don't want to make light of that. 
But are we okay with just okay? Or does God have something more for us? Does God want us to see more people saved? Does God want us to see people walking through the waters of baptism? Does God want us impacting lives through discipleship and mentoring? Does God want us to grow deeper in the Word? Does God want, I, I think we know the answers to those questions. But it starts with every one of us saying, God, you got me. I don't know what that means. don't know what is going to unfold because of that. But God, you got me. Whatever it takes. I don't know your heart. I know mine. I look back and I say, man, there's been really some cool seasons where we gave all and God did. And then there's been some seasons where, man, I kind of held it in that area, in that chapter. I don't want those chapters. I want the chapters where God's at work. And it's His work, not mine. Right? We get that? It's not saying, God, you do this. We're saying, God, what are you doing so I can help you? Big difference. How does God want you to give? Most of us only have a few areas that we can give. But they're all common. Our time, our talents, our treasures. You can find some other T's in there too, I'm sure. But what does God want you to give? So that He can have all. And as Mark Madison reminded us through the life of Moody... We've yet to see what God could do through a life who gives fully to Him. Let's pray.